What is the greatest state in the union? I'll pause here now to allow you to remember all the great memories you and your loved ones have made in that state. Maybe it was the beaches, or the theme parks, or watching a rocket launch into space. Maybe it's the fact that it's the most open and free state, and that became more apparent during COVID-19. It's a place where on any given day you might be able to meet someone from almost any place in the world. The state even has two time zones. You might find celebrities here, or celebrities might be created here. We have all heard the stories of this state through the lens of one of the most famous or maybe infamous celebrities, Florida Man. I don't have to go much further to tell you about the greatest state in the country where people continue to move and even more continue to vacation. But what if I told you that this state has a statewide lifestyle magazine and that it's been around for five years? Did you know that? That is part of the story we are going to get into today here on episode 92 of the Agents of Innovation podcast. Today, we are going to talk to the founder of Flamingo Magazine, Jamie Rich. Jamie is a wife and mother of two girls. She wasn't born in Florida. She came here during her high school years, then she left after college. She lived on three continents. She practiced journalism in Moscow, Cameroon, and London. She even took a college class from the legendary journalist Bob Woodward while she was in grad school at Georgetown. But somehow, Jamie found her way back to Florida and started a print magazine in the digital age. But what happened when COVID-19 hit and most of her advertising revenue completely vanished? Did she fold the print magazine? How did she shift and keep it alive? This month, if you're in Florida... You can find the 5th Anniversary Edition in print on local newsstands from places as diverse as Publix to Barnes & Noble. And I know a lot of you are in Florida, or at least you want to be. Hi, I am your host, Francisco Gonzalez, and for the past six years, I have been engaging with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists through some incredible conversations on the Agents of Innovation podcast. This podcast has featured people from a range of professions who live in more than 20 different states, and some have even been born in other countries. Speaking of other countries, I'm spending most of 2021 living outside the United States as I live and work from Guatemala City as a visiting professor at the Universidad Francisco Marroquin, where I teach courses on entrepreneurship and innovation. But I'm a native-born Floridian. I was born in Miami, grew up in Broward County, went to college in Palm Beach County, lived in the state capital of Tallahassee, And I've also lived in the number one tourist destination in the world, Orlando. If you are listening now, I encourage you to hit the subscribe button so you can be the first to be informed of new episodes. And if you are so inspired and want to support the podcast, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash agents of innovation, patreon.com forward slash agents of innovation. You can also find us on many social media platforms and everything can be found on our website, at agentsofinnovation.org. At the end of this episode, we are going to feature a recently released song by Nicholas Roberts called Back to You. Nick is a Florida musician based in Orlando. He was our guest back on episode 42. This song, Back to You, already has been streamed over 150,000 times online. And fun fact, it was ranked the number one the number 144th song in Lithuania in April. You can find Nick's music at nicholasrobertsmusic.com. When I have a guest on this podcast, I don't forget about them. And in the coming weeks, 
I will be launching a new community called Fearless Journeys, where you can connect with many of the innovators that were first featured on the Agents of Innovation podcast. So stay tuned for that. For those of you in Florida, I want to let you know that I will be coming back to you by the end of May, as I spend about five or six weeks in Florida before coming back to Guatemala for most of the rest of 2021. And today, spending time with Jamie Rich in this interview, you are about to hear, definitely made me thankful that when I can't be in Florida, I can still read about what's happening there through Flamingo Magazine. So let's hear all about this great story with Jamie Rich. Well, I want to welcome Jamie Rich to the Agents of Innovation podcast. Jamie is the founder, publisher, and editor-in-chief of Flamingo Magazine, Florida's only statewide lifestyle media brand covering people, travel, outdoor pursuits, food, conversation, culture, and style across the greatest state in the union, the state of Florida. As an editor and journalist, uh, Jamie has covered travel and culture around the world. Her work has appeared in national and international publications. She spent much of her professional life abroad and worked in newsrooms from the Moscow Times to the Times of London. She holds degrees from Florida State University, and we won't uh, give her uh, any problems there because I grew up a Canes fan, Uh, but also from at Georgetown. Uh, She founded Flamingo in 2015 and is now celebrating their five-year anniversary and Their five-year anniversary issue can now be found at newsstands, and the digital version can be found at flamingomag.com. Jamie, thank you for joining us here on the Agents of Innovation podcast. Thank you for having me, Francisco. Well, it's so great. And I really, before we get started, first of all, I mentioned this magazine, uh, especially the five-year anniversary issue now, uh, can be found at newsstands. Where exactly are these newsstands uh, across the great state of Florida. So, um, well, the new issue just is not even on the newsstand today yet. It will be. Here's the new issue in my hand. Well, by the time people listen to this, I'm sure it yes, will be. Yes, it should be, uh, hopefully, unless there's any problems, which there won't be. Um, but yes, it's on newsstands, typically on newsstands just throughout the state of Florida. That includes Publix, Whole Foods, Fresh Market, Target, Winn-Dixie, um, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, airport bookstores. So all the places you can think that you would normally buy magazines, uh, Flamingo is there. So yeah. Great. So I mean, if I'm at Barnes and Noble, I pretty much go to the magazine rack. I ask the clerk. Uh, if I'm at Publix, it's not going to be next to all those gossipy magazines at the checkout. No, uh, the bubble gun. Where, where else is it going to be at Publix? So you have to go to the book aisle um, with Publix and other larger grocery stores. They have actually a book aisle or where the greeting cards are. So that's where you'll find Flamingo because uh, you have to pay tons of money to be up next to People Magazine by the register at Publix. But um, yeah, Whole Foods and Fresh Market, places like that, they only have one spot for magazines and that's right by the checkout. So those places, it's much easier to find us, but you do have to dig around a little bit when you go into Publix. So look, if uh, I love Publix, it's the greatest uh, supermarket known to mankind. And right. uh, it, I'm actually in Guatemala City right now, Jamie. So number one thing, sorry, I mean, other than mom and dad that I miss is, uh, is Publix, you know, those public subs. And um, I actually had uh, probably an inordinate amount of public subs in the weeks leading to leaving because I knew it was going to be missed. But I'm going to tell my friends at Publix 
I know how much money these people magazines and all these give you to put their magazines at the checkout, but Publix is a Florida company. And I think they should just graciously put Flamingo magazine there when it comes out. Is it once a quarter? I agree. Yes. Well, before the pandemic, we were coming out once a quarter and um, we took a hiatus uh, during 2020 when coronavirus hit for numerous reasons. But um, now that we're back, we're doing a spring summer issue. That's the new issue that I just showed you. And then yeah. um, we're doing a fall winter issue. So um, most people are probably going to be listening to this on all the audio platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and what have you. That's how I listen to most of my podcasts. But uh, we do also take some of the... We are, we are on video right now, and we do take uh, some of the clips and put them on uh, YouTube, on the Agents of Innovation YouTube page. So uh, maybe maybe you'll see Jamie holding that up if you're on the YouTube uh, site. Uh, but Jamie, before we go any further in this conversation, I have to give a shout out to a mutual connection that we have is my friend, Mary Bebout, uh, who's a longtime listener to uh, the Agents of Innovation podcast and a consumer of Flamingo Magazine. And you know, I do tell people that listen to this podcast, send me the great talent uh, that you are seeing around the country or, or wherever. And um, she's told me about you for quite some time. And, and, and you and I have busy schedules and we finally were able to make it happen. So I'm really glad uh, we've finally been able to make it work. And I'm looking forward to being back in Florida in the, in the coming weeks. And um, if I can't get there in time, I will get uh, somebody I know to pick up uh, Flamingo Magazine so I can get a, a handle on the print copy as well. But I've been on your website and I've seen some of the new articles. I've seen some of the past articles. And it really is great, the work you're doing. And especially for somebody who's loves Florida so much like I do. I'm, I'm a native-born Floridian. And... Um, even the six years I lived outside of Florida, and now the few months I'm outside of Florida, you know, you miss Florida. And 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 by the way, uh, we'll get into this in a little bit. But a lot of people in Guatemala uh, that I've met, uh, I mean, there's a lot of people here that are not uh, well advantaged to do this. But the people that are, they've been to Florida. Many of them have family in Miami and other places. So Florida is like it's like you can't go anywhere in the country in the world without people like having some connection to Florida. So and even sure. in the country, especially right. So it's cool that you have this magazine, but tell me a little bit more first about uh, where you are from and what first brought you to Florida and where did you get your first Florida experience, both as a tourist and as a resident? Okay, sure. Well, first, I want to say thank you to Mary for connecting us and for being such an avid Flamingo fan. We love our readers and we wouldn't be here without them. So um, shout out to Mary and thank you so much. Um, but yeah, I, I am not originally, originally from Florida. Like most Floridians, I'm a transplant and um, I grew up in North Carolina until I was a teenager, high school age kid. And, um, you know, my family sprung it on me one day that we were moving to Florida. And at that age, I was 16, just my world had ended. So mm -hmm. I thought, um, but yeah, I moved down from Raleigh area to South Florida to a place called Parkland, which before I think, you know, the, the tragedy that happened at Stoneman Douglas, no one had ever heard of Parkland. I would always have to say Parkland is a little city outside of Fort Lauderdale. And unfortunately, it's become infamous now. But I did move to Parkland um, in South Florida and uh, was really culture shock. South Florida from, to North, from North Carolina to South Florida was complete culture shock to me in the early 90s, mid 90s. Um, so yeah, just went there kind of kicking and screaming. But you know, it, it's kind of a 
sink or swim situation. And I had to figure it out. And, you know, going into a new high school, huge high school, Stoneman Douglas. Uh, yeah, I just, I found some friends and I found people that I connected with and like anyone who's put in a new crazy foreign situation to them. Um, yeah, I just tried to make the best of it. And eventually I did. And eventually I became a lover of Florida. And now I, I really identify with it more now uh, as my home than, than North Carolina. So still love North Carolina, of course. Who doesn't love North Carolina? North Carolina is a great state. One of my favorite states. I especially love the mountains, Asheville, yeah. Hendersonville. Two of our podcast guests, Madison Calthorne and Sam Sahile, uh, live in Hendersonville, North Carolina. One of my favorite places. But um, Florida, obviously, is great. And by the way, um, those guys spent a little time in Florida from time to time, like everybody else. Yes, I actually a connection. Jamie, I wanted to ask you too. First of all, I want to mention, I grew up in Sunrise, uh, 10 minutes from Parkland. So very familiar with Parkland uh, most of my life. Um, beautiful community, of course. And I've, I have a few cousins that went to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas as well, probably a little bit behind you. You and, you and me are more contemporaries, but the I went to St. Thomas Aquinas High School. And, you know, so uh, yeah, I mean, Stillman Douglas is also a great, great athletic school as well. I mean, that's what St. Thomas right, is known for. Also, yes. both are, are were very good in academics. Um, yes, but, absolutely. But let me, uh, let me ask you too, uh, before the move at 16 years old to Florida, had you ever stepped foot in Florida on vacation or anything else? We had, uh, now that I think about it, I wonder, no, no, we didn't know we were moving to Florida then, but they took us to Disney World. My parents took us to Disney World, of course. Um, yeah. 14. So I think I was maybe an eighth grader and um, had a, my little brother and we did the whole Disney trip, which I can really barely remember. You know, it's, I just remember the photos of the trip. Uh, and I rem I have sort of like fleeting memories of, of that Disney experience. Um, but we had been to Florida once before, just like most people, Disney was the only experience or the only reference points I, I had. So um, now that I have Flamingo and one of the I guess driving sort of editorial missions is to, to cover stories that aren't Disney world, that aren't the things that people already associate with Florida and know about it. And that maybe sometimes take over as a reputation for the state when there's so much more rich culture here, people, music, food, diversity that, you know, just makes it so wonderful. So I'm trying to do things that are, outside of the mainstream but yes disney was my first experience 14 years old and um yeah well it's a lot of people's first experience um i'll tell you what you might not remember when you were in eighth grade uh, all the experience my i grew up in broward county we we went like probably on average every other year i don't know maybe i was two or three years old when we first went every i feel like every memory is seared i mean every every experience is seared into my memory um, and, and, and later I started college at UCF in Orlando and actually had the opportunity to work at Disney world for a year and a half as a cast member, ran almost all the rides in fantasy land. And, um, and, and it's funny, my, my dad, my dad to this day is like, you, you were like born for Disney world. We took you to, to Disney world as a kid and we thought, you know, you'd outgrow it at some point. And then you worked there. And then for the last five years, I've lived in, or in Orlando and, you know, I, I make it, you know, a couple times a year. I had, I think the first year I lived there, I had the annual pass, um, which is nice because when you live across town and you're like, oh, I could just go for a couple hours, do a right. few things. It's not like you have to rush around and get on every ride. And it's, it's much more casual and you could experience all the different parks. But My brother's um, in Orlando too now. So he's here and um, he's been here. He's, he's really more of a Florida boy than, um, than I am, I guess, since he was so much younger when we moved here. But, um, mm. 
yeah, the Disney, I, we started going, when I moved down from high school, that was the thing. It was only three hours away. So my friends and I, we'd jump in the car and we'd go to Disney World for the weekend, which was so cool for me because I didn't grow up doing that. So it was just like, wow, we can just go to Disney for a couple of days. Uh, so we did that. And then you probably had the same grad night. Yeah, I had grad night, which oh, I don't have could, anymore, I don't think. You could go to Disney and have the whole park to yourself all night long and Pleasure Island, which I don't think that exists. I think that's universal now. No. But yeah, so 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 you're right about island. yeah, you're right about grad night. I, I actually think they discontinued grad night. I think they started having some issues with the high schoolers. You know, the, the, those young kids they just can't handle uh, being out three in the morning riding rides, uh, getting into trouble. Funny enough, uh, I so I experienced grad night as a student, um, which was so cool, right? Because you leave like we left Broward County at I don't know, like uh, I don't know. I felt like it was late afternoon. Yeah, late evening. afternoon. Yeah. You get up there, it's like 6, 7 p.m. You get into the park and the park is yours till like 3 in the morning. You get home, it's like 6, 7 in the morning. Mm -hmm. And you were just... And, and also the, the experience was cool because like there's no, very little crowd. It's like all high school students. There were bands. Right. Uh, I think the band that played when I was at grad night was the Rembrandts, which at the time had the hit song that was the Friends theme song. Right. right? And, and that, not a huge band, but uh, so I want to tell you a couple of years later, I was a college student. And now I'm working at grad night um, and trying to keep the kids who are just a few years younger than me out of trouble. Uh, they do some nefarious things on those rides. Uh, so <laughs> I'm sure they do. I can only imagine. My so, uh, friends, of course, we're not part of that nefarious group, but um, yeah, I can only imagine. And, what and one of the bands that actually played when I worked was the Backstreet Boys. And Oh my gosh, so great. And they were huge. And by the way, I'm, I'm now, it's now like, three in the morning, five in the morning. I don't know, something ridiculous. Like you work a ridiculous schedule when you work there late at night for I'm grad sure. night. So where we actually were down below in the tunnel checking out and I'm standing, you know, you sit there and you wait for the clock to hit whatever. So you can, you can hit your card and check out. And literally right next to me for about 10 minutes, like the entire Backstreet Boys are just standing there too right. um, with a couple of us. And I'm just thinking like, Every like fifteen year old girl wishes they were me right now, just standing right, right here next to the Backstreet Boys. But anyway, icons—that's uh, that's actually a story we've been talking about for a while—is like the boy bands of Orlando because they were really, you know, generated from there. Even though all the the pieces and players and people and musicians weren't from Florida per se, but they really were brought there and groomed and trained, and that's where the bands came from. So that's another sort of Florida culture story we've got brewing, but. So, uh, so let's get over my Disney obsession right now and, uh, and move on to uh, you, Jamie. And uh, we have a lot to talk about. And of course, on this podcast, one of the things I've always liked to do is help people understand the journey of the person that we have on. And so uh, I want to know first, where did your work experience begin? What was your first job in life? And what maybe did you learn from that position that uh, maybe still sticks with you today? Well, my first job was not in the journalism field. Uh, when I graduated from Florida State with a bachelor's in communications and English, I had a double major with English communications because there wasn't a there wasn't a journalism school at Florida State then. And when I chose to go to Florida State as an 18-year-old, a senior in high school, of course, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I just knew I wanted to go to Florida State because once I stepped foot on that campus and took the tour my mom always just tells the story. I was sitting in the front of the van of the tour van and just my whole attitude and everything changed because it's just such got, got such great energy in Tallahassee. It's just a classic college town and I fell in love with it. So anyway, just, you know, that whole 
time period really shaped how I think of Florida and my connection to it. The point of me saying all that is that when I, I really did kind of always want to be in journalism, but I didn't start figuring that out until I was in college. And then it was kind of too late. I was there and okay, this is what my choices are. Media, public relations. There were some journalism related classes in the PR and communications college um, and English, of course. But um, when I got out of school, what I realized is, you know, unfortunately, journalists do not make very much money. And um, as my decision to go to Florida State was driven by my social desires to be with friends and have fun, um, my first place where I lived after college was also driven by the same factors. Uh, so I went to Atlanta with my friends from college, and I feel like there was this mass exodus from Tallahassee to Atlanta in 1999 with a bunch of Florida Oh, State it's still happening. Grads. Uh, <laughs> but we got up there, and I needed a job, and I had to pay my own bills. So um I, I definitely applied for some jobs at CNN and some other local media places, hoping that I could kind of um, jump into journalism. But the the pay, the starting salary was so low that there was no way I was going to be able to afford to live in Atlanta and um, even with roommates and all that stuff. So long story short, I ended up going into PR and going into the marketing side, the communication side. And I ended up getting a job with the Southern Company, which is a huge energy company based in Atlanta, headquartered in Atlanta. And um, I was in their corporate communications group. My first boss was a woman named Sandra Mackey. And she, I just, she really has been so pivotal, pivotal, pivotal in my life. I'm sorry. Sandra has been so pivotal in my life um, and my professional development, just because she really was a friend. She really took me under her wing and she was so kind to me and she just really became a mentor. And it's just something that I feel like is so fortunate because most people, their first jobs, they do not land such a great boss that I had and who really cared about me and cared about seeing me succeed and just grooming me. So I had Sandra as a boss and we were in the corporate communications, public relations group. And, um, I was, I was in the energy sector and the energy sector is not sexy. It's not, I didn't know anything about it. It's super complex. And um, I just really was kind of thrown into something that I had to learn completely from the ground up and, you know, with so many different facets to it. So that in of itself was so just eye opening, trying to learn the energy industry, also have your first job and be doing corporate communications and PR so I, I really, I love that experience because it was a huge corporation and um, our division of it actually ended up sort of spinning off. And there were so many professional opportunities there that really helped me get some great experience that young professionals don't usually get exposure to. So we ended up spinning off, rebranding, listing on the New York Stock Exchange, going public. And the position that I was in, I was able to really be a big part of those, of that process, just planning the listing day events on the New York Stock Exchange. So, mm. you know, I was a 21 year old kid right out of college and, you know, the communications director came out to me and was like, you need to help us get on the New York Stock Exchange floor so we can ring the bell on the day of our listing because you can, wow. your stock lists, but you may not be on the podium ringing the bell that day. You may be able to ring the bell on a different day, but you know, the CEO really wants to ring the bell on that day. So uh, that was one of my first sort of assignments to, you know, get us ringing the bell on that day and just picking out the tchotchkes for the 
for the IPO and all that kind of stuff. So it was really fun. I got to go up to New York City, you know, go on the company jet, you know, all these fun things that was just as a 21 year old, 22 year old were, you know, really awesome experiences. And then I had my boss, Sandra, along with me who just, you know, I couldn't have been more blessed. So, you know, that was a great experience. I also ended up meeting my husband at work, uh, which there weren't any official rules about, okay, you can't date anyone um, at work. So we tried to keep that pretty quiet for a while, but, um, but still anyway, to this day, a lot of people meet their spouse at work. I, totally. So yeah. I don't know why it is such a, a no, no, I guess to, um, I, I understand definitely workplace appropriateness. Don't get me right. wrong, but if you spend so much time there, of course, connections are going to be made and, um, relationships are going to form. So, um, anyways, my first job was in the energy sector and it was not anything related to journalism, but it, um, definitely prepared me to, um, just take on the world, I guess. So the other, but you were doing, it, you were doing like communications. I was doing communications. I was doing PR. I was doing media mm-hmm. relations. I was talking to the reporters. Um, so we were doing a lot of messaging and press releases and things like that. So the other big news story that kind of happened while I was working there, which was related to our company was the Enron story. And I don't know if you remember mm. Enron, but oh, yeah. Uh, you know, what our, what our piece of the company did was essentially just like Enron. So uh, the company was rebranded. It was called Mirant. It no longer exists. Um, but yeah, our business was the same energy trading, international business, international um, power plants and energy trading. And when Enron went down, our company basically ended up going down too. Uh, but just having to message wow. around that, having to talk to reporters about that on the national stage and, you know, really trying to communicate what we did and who we were and how separate ourselves from this evil empire. Uh, that was definitely a great training ground for me in terms of, you know, being a journalist, but being a PR professional as well and putting on your, your marketing hat and trying to figure out how am I going to communicate, you know, what needs to be communicated in this crisis, crisis communication. So, um, yeah, for sure. Well, you know, just just to give you a little, just, I mean, trying to weigh in on that journalism uh, factor there first. First of all, I have a younger brother that's uh, seven and a half years younger than me. Who uh, I'm sorry to tell you, he he graduated from the University of Florida. They did have a journalism school when he was I know. there. It's a really good journalism school. Um, <laughs> I should have. Well, no, I shouldn't have gone there actually. But my assistant editor will be happy to hear that um, she is a Gator, and she reminds oh, me all the time. And she's fabulous and brilliant, and we love Florida Gators at Flamingo Magazine. So we take them all. We take Seminoles, we take Gators. But um, yes, go ahead. Well, my brother Antonio Gonzalez, uh, he was also very passionate about sports. And let me tell you. I just know this because when he was a little kid and he would read the newspaper every day, that's when he, I mean, when he first started reading, he would read the sports columns and he was just, I, I mean, it was like, you couldn't depict the, the kid who wanted to become the sports columnist or the sports editor, sports reporter and actually became it very fast after college. He actually got an internship with the Associated Press while he was in college or right after, I think he got a full year internship after that, um, he had to go to Miami and then he went to Nashville. Um, anyway, then he ended up fighting his way to San Francisco and had an incredible position. Uh, he also, for whatever reason, um, every team he covers like wins the whole thing. Like when he was at UF as a student is when they had Tebow and they sure. won football championship twice and the basketball championship in the same year one time as the football, which was the only school ever to do that. 
Like, well, it's okay. Good. good. You're lucky. You know, you had a good day. Then he goes and, uh, and he, the only thing that he, that actually he did that didn't win was the, uh, Miami, Mar- the Miami Marlins. I think, I don't know what happened there, but, yeah, but the, the uh, never really he did. was sent to Orlando at one point and the Orlando magic went all the way to the NBA finals when he was there. Um, and he then he goes the Bucks right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I told him, I told him, so he went to San Francisco, uh, the year that the 49ers won it. Uh, he covered Stanford when they had Andrew Luck and they won the Rose bowl. Uh, he covered, um, uh, one, I think one of the hockey team. I mean, it's like everything he covered. And I, I, it's funny. Then he started covering the golden state Warriors when they were not that like they were okay. They were not even really playoff team, barely missed it every year. And then they started having a run and they started being one of the top. And I, I actually tweeted this out. I said, if you, uh, if, if the golden state or I think I just told him this over, I said, if the golden state warriors win the NBA championship, I am going to demand that the AP put you on the Miami dolphins. Uh, so of course, so of course they win the championship and I immediately tweet like, please AP, you know, send my brother to the Miami Dolphins. So anyway, he actually got out of journalism for other reasons. It was just very demanding on his life and he's doing great now in other, other aspects. But, um, that was a success story. When I was in high school ahead of him, I did a internship. I actually wrote for the St. Thomas Aquinas high school paper called the Raider review. And I almost forget this little blip, but uh, then I did an internship with the sun Sentinel with like on for their high school page. Sure. And I remember as part of that, they were trying to help groom young journalists. Uh, and we would have these little meetings where the journalists would come in the room and tell us their life story. And I, and I just think they all sounded so miserable about their jobs. I don't make any money. The hours are long. I don't see my family. I was like, I am done with journalism. Yeah, scratch <laughs> so, that one off the list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, no, I, that it, it's the result, you know, that it, it's a low paying career choice unless you go in certain routes. I mean, he's obviously print or digital, so he's not a broadcast, which I think can end up being more lucrative. But um, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, my brother did fine. He had a great job. He just, the main thing I think for him, and I'm speaking for him right now was, he got married and was starting to look at having a family. Now he has two young children and he, and he realized I, this is like my dream job. I mean, I'm covering, I get to be in the locker room with all these amazing athletes. Like uh, I get to know them. I have their cell phones, like all these things. Uh, but you know what? Like I, what are, when are sports played nights, weekends, and holidays, right. three times you really want to be with your family. And, and I think it's good for him that he was able to say, Hey, I did my dream job and now I want to live a family life and do something else. So, um, now but I do, but I do think are. that journal, yeah, but journalism is, um, is a very tough, uh, field these days for a lot of reasons. And, and let's get, let's get into that. But, but I, I understand. Uh, so let me, so we talked about you working for Southern company. Um, and by the way, the other thing I wanted to say was I lived in Tallahassee for eight years, um, much further after, uh, college, about eight years after I went to college, but I saw this migration of a lot of people that leave Tallahassee and go to Atlanta. I mean, it's oh, still yeah. like, a, it's, it's still a thing. Um, but well, that's why we're circulated. That's why we wanted to expand to the Atlanta market, especially on with mm. Publix and Whole Foods, Fresh Market, all the you know, newsstands there, because it's just such a you know drive market sort of connector city to all all places in Florida, really, not Jacksonville per se, but um, you know throughout the state. That in New so, York, in New York City, there's such huge connections between Florida and New York and yeah. Atlanta. Oh, a lot. I mean, a lot of places, right? I mean, if you go to the Midwest. Uh, and Southwest Florida, just a lot of connections between sure, those Michigan. Places. That's where mm-hmm. all the Michiganders go. Yeah. Wisconsin, Ohio. So, I mean, they're all, they're all coming from everywhere, but, uh, you know, I understand, uh, after you, uh, 
you know, so you were with Southern Company in Atlanta, you met your husband. I understand that you and your husband moved abroad for a number of years. Tell us a little bit about that experience. And then if you want to blend in uh, when you really got into journalism again. Yes. So um, the leap to journalism kind of connects with the whole idea of meeting my husband at work because, you know, we met, we fell in love. And um, eventually he got a job opportunity in Moscow. And at that time we were still just dating, but we've been dating for quite a while. And um, basically it was just like, look, if, if we're going to go to Moscow, <laughs> you know, we got to make this official. So uh, we got engaged and we moved over to Moscow. And that was my first time being an expat. It was my first time living overseas. So did you honeymoon in the, no, it wasn't in the Soviet Union like Bernie Sanders. But. No, it was not in the Soviet <laughs> Union, but it was still very much an emerging market. I mean, Moscow was not your sort of polished European city. It was gorgeous and beautiful. And there were so many amazing cultural gems there, the Bolshoi ballet. I mean, just Moscow is an amazing city, but at the time it was still also this juxtaposition of severe poverty and glitz and glam. And now I haven't been back actually since we left in 2004, but I think now it's just like one Mm -hmm. of the most glitzy, glamorous cities in the world. Um, But when we were there, it was definitely more rough and um, not rough in a sense of danger. I never, I never felt in danger there, actually. Um, I loved my experience in Moscow and I uh, really embraced it. But it gave me the chance to sort of reflect and think, okay, what, what do I want to do professionally? You know, I'm living in this new country where I don't speak the language. So I did originally, first things first, was enroll in a language school. And that's where I ended up making some great longtime friends who actually live in Florida now. <laughs> one of them is Mexican and one of them is German and they both live in Florida or have homes in Florida. Mexican and German and you met them in Moscow and now they live in Florida. What a world. Yes, exactly. So we, uh, yeah, so that was really the chance for me to take a look at what I was doing professionally and um, that's when I decided to make the leap to journalism. So I started just writing freelancing for local publications, uh, English language magazines and newspapers that were produced there in in Moscow, Um, one of them being the Moscow Times. And that's the only English language daily newspaper in the city. So widely read, widely circulated and um, got a job on the copy desk. So I was still not doing anything super glamorous there, but it was just kind of the starting starting point for me. So is the whole paper in English? The whole paper's in English. So it's an English language daily newspaper. Did you find Moscow. did you find that you had uh, like a unique advantage being an English speaking you know uh, expat or were there other uh, were there a lot of other people like that? There? I did have an advantage, uh, and that's there are, there weren't a lot of people moving to Moscow um, asking to work at the Moscow Times who were Americans. Uh, you know, English was their native tongue, and um, who had experience you know with writing uh, professionally. So that definitely put gave me an advantage, but it's still. Uh, you know, was still I was still early in my career altogether. The PR part, I had worked for five years. I was five years into being an adult, so to speak, um, but knew I wanted to make this career change. All those years of working in PR, I wanted to be on the other side of the phone. I didn't want to be the PR person calling the journalists and telling them, oh, you should write about my story. I've got the best story or trying to massage whatever the message needed to be sent out. I wanted to just really discover the best content, discover the stories, write about what I wanted to write about and not 
try to create a story where there wasn't one or try to divert the attention to something else, um, which was your job as a PR person. So that was the chance for me to really say, look, I'm going to, I'm going to leave the PR side. I'm going to go to the other side of the fence and um, put on that journalism hat. And the Moscow times was really my first foray into that. And it was an interesting time to be in Moscow. Uh, That was the time where Putin actually had changed uh, the constitution so that he could eventually be president again. And um, it was it was interesting to be in a newsroom and see the dynamics from the editors to the writers to the journalists, the people who were doing the reporting. Um, I did write some business profiles and I had some bylines in the paper there, uh, which which none none of them were political or even close to it. So I, I wasn't being looked at or scrutinized in terms of the, the content I was putting out. It was really just for me an experience to soak it all in and you know, be on the newsroom floor in Moscow of a, of a newspaper that was widely read by by every expat, every um, English language person living in the country, probably at that time. And, and not to get too political here, but I, I wanted to add, you know, that seems interesting that you were running uh, or not running, you were writing for a paper at a time of real government, um, you know, <laughs> A real government intervention, I guess you could say it another way, but I mean, it, or in a, pl- in a place where there were some, some things happening that were super interesting that if something like that happened here, in the United States, like, you know, there'd be probably lots of protests and, lo- you know, lots of uh, issues, oh, yeah. especially with the media. Yeah. Right. But like, uh, what did, uh, did, did you feel like there were maybe other writers that maybe wrote things that were more political that They didn't feel like they had a free press? Oh, for sure. There were definitely moments. I mean, we were still going to press in the old school style. It wasn't digital. You know, it was very much analog uh, process to put the paper out every night. And I was working the night shift, too. So, um, you know, just seeing that end of day process where editors were coming in and striking things from stories, for Mm. sure. I mean, I, I saw that firsthand, you know, the 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 molding of the message from the Kremlin. You know, this is not going to go down. This is not going to go over well. We're not going to print this. Um, so that was never part of my. Was it was it self? Time. Was it more like self editing? Like people like the, like the newspaper self editing? Yeah, I'm or sure. It... People thought very carefully before yeah. uh, they put pen to paper and about the words they put on the paper at that time. Um, and I know just just living through that experience and what was happening politically then there and being in the newsroom and um, just a you know, absorbing it all, I started to just become more aware of the reporters that were putting themselves out there and the reporters that were taking risks. And even after we moved and left, you know, have followed Russia, followed the media there, followed, you know, stories and, and what's happened. And, you know, there's been some horrifying, horrifying things that have happened to journalists and people trying to tell the truth um, or tell their truth, you know, report the facts. And it's, it's just really makes you thankful that you, that I, I live in a place and I'm, I'm an American. I can, you know, count on the fact that my country is going to support me and, and not, you know, I'm not going to lose my life over a story that I want to publish. So, um, no, that was, that was a very real thing. It was something I was just learning about at that time. I'm a very curious person by nature, which is what I think drew me to journalism. But, um, you know, before moving to Russia, I never thought about Russia. I never thought about, you know, geopolitical issues, really. I was just 20, at that time, I was 26 years old and, you know, just kind of realizing the, the bigger world around me. So um, it was definitely eye-opening and definitely was the beginning of a lifelong journey of 
of learning, learning about other cultures, appreciating other cultures and, um, and just, yeah, realizing that we're so lucky to have the freedom yeah. that we have. So Russia wasn't your only foreign uh, living experience for you and your husband. What, what came uh, after this? So uh, after Russia, we lived there two years um, and then his job assignment changed and we moved back to D.C. We moved to D.C. We moved back to the U.S. and um, he had an opportunity with a company based there. So we left. And um, like I said, we're based in the D.C. area. We lived in northern Virginia, in Alexandria, and um, I was actually pregnant at the time. So um, it was a good time to just sort of come back to the States, regroup. Um, but I started really thinking, okay, I, I'm a journalist now. I'm no longer a PR person. And, um, you know, really just started trying to make a go of it freelancing because I was pregnant. I knew I wasn't going to get hired anywhere, you know, right away uh, in a newsroom. So I just um, started freelancing and trying to pitch stories to editors. I mean, we're talking even just like local newspapers and magazines to Alexandria, I mean, not even you know, Washington, DC per se, but, um, you know, it's just super competitive. It's one of the most competitive markets in the world. So if you really need to know what you're doing, I needed more skills in my, in my toolbox to be successful. And I realized that pretty quickly in Moscow, your question earlier, you know, was I sort of, you know, set up for success because how many English language speakers are there, you know, applying for jobs at the Moscow times, American, um, professionals, and there weren't, a lot. Um, so it was a great opportunity for me, but to come back to Washington DC area was, you know, eye opening also because it was like, okay, you're not just going to show up and start getting work. Um, so I applied to journalism school and, um, just thought, okay, if I get in, you know, well, great, you know, this will be a new part of the journey. So I applied um, to Georgetown and got into their journalism, their master's program. And that really helped, uh, put my journalism career on a new trajectory and, challenged me and you know it was such a difference to go to grad school when you're 30 versus you know undergrad at 18 years old and like I said the decisions that I made to go to Florida State were based totally on atmosphere and we were number one you know football school number one party school I think at that time but when you when I was 30 and and approaching it you know going to grad school from the standpoint of like I really want to increase my skills my education I want to better myself you know it's just such a different approach and mindset. And I think I got so much out of that experience that really has helped me. Yeah. And I bet that, yeah, just being a little bit older than probably even some of the other grad students, right? I mean, who probably go in there at 22, it was a 23. Mix. It, was it was a, a mix. mix. Honestly, we had um, a lot of people right out of uh, undergrad and then there were, there were students a lot older than I was. So I was kind of in the middle probably. Hmm. Interesting. Well, but you also had a lot of great work experience already behind you uh, a little been a journalism experience. I mean, a yes, I had a portfolio at that point. Yeah. Um, and even when I was at Florida State, I did. Um, I have that inkling of you know wanting to be a news person already. I did my internship in the public uh, affairs office for the university, and one of the things that they did was they um, allowed the interns to write stories for the Tallahassee Democrat. So my first bylines ever were in the Tallahassee Democrat as um, an intern at the public affairs office. But um, I did have you know by that time a portfolio of clips from national, international publications. Um, and, you know, I, I, I was set up to kind of take things to the next level. And did the journalism school, uh, I mean, was it partly that it was great because of the, what you learned in the classroom? Um, or was it also um, 
the, maybe the connections, maybe some of the professors and the connections you might've made? It was all of it really. Um, I, you know, just going through the rigor of the program and the different types of classes that they offered and the writing experience. I mean, you're basically just given assignments like you would be from an editor and um, in different, uh, pretend like you're on different types of desks and, you know, you get to try on your narrative nonfiction hat. You get to try on your straight news writing hat. You get to try on your, your sports writing hat, the sports class, the sports journalism was the only B that I made in grad school. So my dad and brother love to joke uh, with me that I'm like the most anti-sports person and they're just like the craziest sports fans. So um, anyway, yeah, I, I think it was the rigor of the program for sure made a huge difference for me and it just gave me so much writing experience and great critical feedback that I think everyone needs. Um, you need that hard critic to sort of say to you, you know, this could be better, that could be better, this is what you're doing wrong. Even some classes where journalists, we would have a lot of journalists who were working in the field come in, speak to the class, and just say, this is the structure that the story has, just almost like a recipe. So things like that really opened my eyes um, that you know I hadn't had in undergrad or, or I didn't already know. Um, so there was that, but then definitely the, the people, the personalities, the, the professors, they were all working journalists. They were all super successful in their own right in different fields. And um, they definitely helped um, shape me. They definitely helped me even with the Flamingo journey when I decided to sort of start planning for the launch of a magazine, which I definitely did not have the tools to do at that time. I was a, a writer. I was a journalist. I was working. I was not a business person. I was not a publisher. I was not in the, in the business of making magazines. So um, I reached out to a lot of those professors uh, that I had in grad school. And even if they weren't necessarily subject matter expert on what I needed, they connected me with their friends and their um, coworkers and colleagues who were also instrumental and in just giving me their time and information. And it was really like a news gathering experiment for probably a year before I actually launched the company. So um, yeah, so also it was definitely the the caliber of, of teachers and the connections that I made. Um, one of the classes was actually, you had to be sort of selected by the program to participate in this one class. And it took place at the Washington Post. And each week our class met there in the newsroom and they would have a different editor from a different desk teach the class that week. Wow. Um, so, you know, you had yeah, I was going to say, I imagine that being in Washington, D.C., almost like being in New York. I mean, there's just such a media heavy, saturated environment. Uh, well, I, I mean, just some of these top people. I mean, I remember I went to grad school at the University of Maryland. And while I was there, I was invited at least once or twice to go sit in the audience at Crossfire when that was around. And that was kind right. of cool. just to go down the street and see it happen. Right. So uh, I imagine actually one time I was on a, I was actually in a focus group for Frank when Frank Luntz was just starting those up. Uh, right. And it's just something you do because you're there and these are just cool opportunities in the DC area. So I imagine like for somebody in journalism and sitting in the Washington Post uh, newsroom and getting me here directly from editors that are read from people all over the world. I mean, that's got to be an incredible experience. Oh, it was amazing. So one, one quick story about that. Each week, like I said, different editors. So it might be... Um, you know, at the time, Robin Givon was covering fashion for for the Washington Post, and she would write about the first lady's fashion. And she she just came at it from such an intellectual side. So she, people like her would be on um, just sharing how she covered fashion and politics, or it might be the Metro Desk editor or the food editor. Um, and then one week we come in, and I knew ahead of time. I don't know why 
I didn't think more about it probably because I was in a hurry or dealing with my two-year-old at the time, but um, Bob Woodward was teaching the class that week. So uh, we come into class and I'm like, hey, Bob Woodward's going to be my teacher. I mean, you can't think of a more iconic journalist on earth. And um, we show up and he had just written his book about George Bush. Um, it had just come out. I, I can't remember the title of it now, but of course, everyone else in the class shows up with like a stack of books for him to sign. And I'm just like, why didn't I, why did I bring the books? Because my husband is also a, a, an avid reader and has like every Bob Woodward book back until like the early days, first editions and um, about Tom Belushi and just all, all of these like great books by Bob Woodward. And I just totally dropped the ball and didn't even think about it. So uh, we had our class. It was a great class. Bob was great. And um, afterwards I thought, oh, you know, Brian, my husband would just love to have one of his first editions signed by Bob Woodward. And um, so I reached out to the secretary, his assistant. I was like, hey, you know, could I just drop a book off and, and have Bob sign it? I didn't bring anything today. And she was, oh yeah, no problem just bring it by the office and um, Bob will definitely sign it. So she sends me the address and I go, I, I don't even know if we had Google maps then this was in like 2008. Um, but I pull up, it's his home. It's his town home in Georgetown. That's where his office was. So I ring the doorbell and she lets me in and she's like, okay, just sit right here and sends me over to the waiting room that the, the the little living room and then Bob Woodward comes downstairs and we sit in the living room and talk for like 10 minutes, signs the books. And I'm like, just unbelievable that I got to go to his house all because I was unprepared for his class really. <laughs> um, and you, you just know, didn't want to act like a super fan in class, right? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It was all planned. But anyway, that was, so that was some of the exposure and experience that I had as a result of going to grad school at Georgetown. So to answer your question, yes, it was definitely the rigor of the program, but also the access to, you know, the top, top people in the industry that is just priceless. So yes, that was a huge. So after grad school, uh, tell us, uh, tell us the path from, uh, from that point on to come, I think you left the country again, and then you came back to Florida. When, when did that all happen? Yes. So we left um, DC and we moved to Cameroon. We had two more moves after that before coming back to Florida, mm. but we moved to Cameroon. Um, and during the time that I was in grad school and we were in DC, my husband was working on a project in Cameroon, which is in Central Africa. It borders with um, Nigeria and the Congo. So it, it's definitely not Cape Town. Let's put it that way. It's not South Africa. It, it's very much um, an under, underdeveloped country, an emerging market. And um, yeah, so he was working there during that time when I was in grad school, commuting, you know, two weeks there, a week at home, three weeks there, a week at home. And he did that for at least two and a half, three years while we were in DC, probably two and a half, three years. And then um, we all moved over to Cameroon as a family once our daughter was old enough to get the required vaccines and, and all that good stuff. So we moved over to Cameroon and um, another eye-opening experience, which was really amazing. I mean, I, I would, I would make the decision to go back to Cameroon again. If I had to say like, you know, make the decision again, I would do it again. Um, but it was definitely, uh, you know, it was, some people might say it was dangerous. You know, we had a, a toddler, she ended up getting malaria twice, um, things like that. You know, there's wow. no medical care there. You really get to see, you know, how, 
some of these global issues are impacting people on a micro level because you're living there too and you're experiencing it too. And at the time, I remember Ashton Kutcher, who I think was on TV saying, oh, you know, buy a mosquito net and you're going to save a life. And um, we lived in Cameroon, in Douala, which is the, um, it's the industrial hub. It's the business hub of the country. And um, we had the best of, of what was on offer there. We lived in a Western style home. We had air conditioning. We had mosquito nets, we had bug spray, we had access to everything that you could possibly have to prevent getting malaria and we still got malaria. So if you um, live in a village, if you live in a, a tiny lean-to in, in the villages of Cameroon or anywhere in um, a malaria zone, a mosquito net is not going to prevent you from getting it. It's the medicine that people really need. Um, to make sure they don't die. And malaria is so commonplace there now. For most people, it is like getting the flu. It's no big deal. But then you have those cases where people die because they don't have access to the medication that could so easily resolve it. Um, so anyway, that, that was definitely um, a, a life-changing experience. And then one of the things that I did as a journalist when I was there, I um, was reporting on the issue of breast ironing. So I discovered there was this tradition where women, mothers and aunties, if you will, the women in the family are trying to protect the young girls in their family um, who are going through puberty on the beginning stages of going through puberty and their breasts are starting to, you know, bud. They're, they're basically starting to uh, develop. And so the women will essentially mutilate them by uh, pounding the breasts with stones, with any kind of kitchen instrument, you know, you name it, there's a lot of different ways that they do this practice, but they're essentially trying to make them look, they, they bind the breasts, they press the breasts, they crush it, they do anything they can to try and keep the girls looking prepubescent. Um, and the, the reasons are many, but you know, it's, oh, we, there's a notion that they'll become promiscuous if their breasts start to develop. There's a notion that, you know, once their breasts develop, men, boys will look at them, and, and they'll be sexually assaulted, they'll be raped. You know, there's all kinds of um, re rationales and reasons that people practice this. And it all comes from a place of love because they want to protect the girls and their family. Uh, but it's not based on information. It's not based on medicine. And it really destroys these girls emotionally. So there was a big campaign nationally at the time in Cameroon for awareness to try and, and get this tradition to stop but it is still deep rooted. It's still happening. That was gosh, in 2009, uh, that I reported that story, but I spent probably six months reporting in the villages of Cameroon in Douala and Yaoundé, which is the capital meeting with girls, meeting with their mothers. There was an executive at the company where Brian worked, his wife practiced this and they were proud of it. You know, it wasn't like this thing that was stigmatized. You shouldn't be doing this. It was something that people were doing because they wow. cared. Well, amazing kind of stories that you would find in a place like that. And and what and then what was your path? Uh, did you did you go one more place before coming back? Yes. Yeah, so we ended up leaving Cameroon and we ended up in London next. And um, that we stayed for three years in London. And that's when I worked at the Times of London in the newsroom there, working on the digital desk and working at night again. Um, and I had two night shifts, Moscow Times and the Times of London. And uh just really soaking it all in like a sponge because it was again, sort of like the, the Georgetown, the Washington post experience, just you're in one of the most 
you know, respected news organizations in the world, one of the most widely read in the world, and just the opportunity there to learn from the editors and the other writers and the other people, editors and digital desk people that were, um, I, I wasn't writing for the Times, I was editing, uh, like I said, their digital, the iPad edition, actually, because then it was just iPads had just come out. Wow. And um, so, yeah, it was just a great learning experience. And um, I was writing for other publications there, freelancing and writing for publications back in the US, including the Washington Post. Um, but I was writing for the independent and you're, and you're a working mother at this point. Is it how many children did you have at this point? We had one at that point, but I was, I was pregnant when I was at the times and yeah. I was working at night. So, you know, that was just interesting too. working the night shift, being pregnant uh, with a child. My husband worked, he had a really, you know, demanding schedule too. So we would sort of meet on the tube platform and exchange our daughter. So I would bring her oh down gosh. at 6 p.m. We would get on the so tube. So for people that don't know, the tube is like the, uh, the metro, like the subway in, in London. So you'd meet basically on the tube platform to yes. exchange, to hand off your daughter. Yes. I would get to bank station. He would be getting out of his job at go down to bank station. I would hand her off. I would go on to work and he would go home. So yeah, it was, it was interesting times, but I loved it. I mean, there couldn't have been a more energizing place to work and a city to work in at that time. So, you know, I got the, well, this is uh this is fun hearing all of your uh, living abroad stories uh, just on my just previous podcast, episode 91 had a barn burner of an episode with uh, Dan Weinberg, who's a YouTube vlogger. Uh, he's about probably about 30-ish, 30 years old or so, but he's lived in a lot, a lot of places around the world, but uh, he started documenting them on YouTube, right? So he, he makes a business now on YouTube, and now he's back to actually being a writer because COVID kind of sidelined him for a year from traveling and didn't want to promote a lot of travel videos. So it was a very interesting story, but you know, we... Uh, and, and, and on top of that, I'm living abroad right now in Guatemala. So it's kind of interesting between Dan, you and me, you know, just having these, uh, these, these interesting experiences that are, um, I mean, not something you really think about, but you, you mentioned, gosh, Cameroon. I mean, I would probably think it's a lot uh, more, more risk or danger. I mean, you, I, malaria, I mean, not to mention there might be, you know, violent type situations, but, you know, coming to Guatemala, you know, a lot of people tell me, oh, Guatemala is dangerous. Guatemala City is dangerous. Um, and yeah, there are parts of Guatemala City I wouldn't go, uh, especially by myself, especially as a foreigner. But for the most part, it feels like any other big city. A um, lot of, you know, a lot of great things here and um, booming city too. So, so you're, 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 and by the way, I wanted to bring this in too, because I feel like the media has a lot. Uh, not maybe not purposely, but it's just we only have so much time to consume things. The media has only so many pages or hours to to report on things. And when you hear about things from other countries, it's usually not positive news. Uh, and um, and so people have these, I think, false perceptions of other places that they've never been. And mostly, it's just through the prism of the media that they're learning it. But once you actually go to a place and you see how people live, and you see that actually the world's I mean, it's not, it's not, yeah. Are there dangerous spots? Yeah, absolutely. But for the most part, you know, you're, you could be fine in most places in the world. And, um, and, and especially, you know, if you, uh, if you can find the right places in those cities and, and places, but I don't know what, what your experience was like with that, but, uh, but I just, I just think it's, it's interesting um, that people maybe uh, if you have the opportunity, I really do encourage people to, to spend a little time abroad, whether it's a, a few weeks on a trip, or if you're able to do a six months or a year, um, 
you know, just get to know a place. It's kind of, it's kind of cool. And it, and yeah, it gives you no. a different perspective. I think it's so, it's been so critical to who I've become um, living overseas. And I didn't go overseas until, I mean, I went overseas for a European trip after college for a couple of weeks, but you know, I didn't, the only thing I got out of that was a lot of uh, wine drinking and, you know, it definitely wasn't much uh, culture shock there, but I think living somewhere, like you said, for a year, six months, you know, really immersing yourself in the culture, it gives you such a different perspective and gives you such a different connection with the place. Uh, like I said, I, I followed Russian stories through the years because I lived there, you know, if Cameroon comes up on the news ticker, you know, I'm going to read about Cameroon and there have been things that have happened there, you know, with their, they have a dictator, you know, with the, with the government, with politics that I definitely pay attention to that I would never have thought twice about before because it wasn't on my radar. I had no connection to it. So I do think travel is so important for that reason, just giving people perspective and helping them feel connected to other cultures is so important to appreciating, you know, diversity, appreciating people's differences, understanding it's not dangerous just because it's different. Um, and it, but, you know, a lot of that is also just your own view of the world and your own personality, and your own um, mindset, because, you know, living as abroad as an expat and, and especially as an expat wife, you know, my husband's job is what took us overseas. And um, I was following his job and I made my own professional uh, I made my own professional way there, but a lot of the other expat wives did not, and they hated it. And they, you know, they weren't going to embrace the situation whatsoever. They just wanted to find anything that looked like a home. They wanted to find anything that reminded them of America. They, they wanted to go to McDonald's or they wanted to go to Starbucks or, you know, there was no Starbucks in Cameron or Moscow, but you know, just people, people are going to bring to it their own sort of temperament. And um, I just think you have to have an open mind, but traveling definitely, helps you gain a more open mind, I think. But I have seen a lot of people in those situations. You know, that's a really great perspective. And you know, it's funny, uh, when I was talking to Dan Weinberg, who's from Canada originally, his dad worked in uh, like immigration services or something. And so he mentioned uh, growing up, you know, they did some traveling, and but he never lived abroad. But he felt that he already had an openness to other cultures or being curious about other cultures. And so it was an openness that allowed him to think I could actually live somewhere else and I want to experience that. So uh, I thought that was an interesting perspective. And, and so you could, you could already kind of be somewhat open to that and curious and go somewhere, but you, you may have a totally different perspective and just say, I've never had experiences with other cultures. I feel like you and I, I mean, I, I know you didn't move there until you were 16, but I grew up in South Florida and I, I don't know, I just felt like uh, I always met people from everywhere all the time, my entire life. I didn't realize that that was unique, you know, to South Florida. Right. Um, I'm in the process of finishing Matthew McConaughey's book, Green right. Lights, which mm -hmm. is a fascinating book. Have you read it? No, but we just got it from a friend. It was just gifted to us. Fascinating. I didn't even know about it till like a week ago. And I've been listening to it on Audible, which I highly recommend. Does he read it? He reads it okay, and it is the okay. most fantastic reading of an audible because, you know, he's an actor too, and he's putting right. all of his emotion into it and it's his story. But uh, he mentioned he was, he had some experiences abroad and I, I actually have a quote here. I, I wrote down uh, that I just had to look up when you, when you were talking and he said to appreciate a place fully, a man must know that he can live there when all his discomforts disappear and he lets himself be owned by the place. He needs to customize and localize himself to the place he visits to the, degree, to the degree that he knows he can dwell there forever. Then and only then 
Is it truly acceptable for him to leave? Wherever you are, give the place the justice it deserves. And when I just heard you talking about how some people go abroad and they just want to go go to Starbucks and live the life, like bring America or you know to their place, whatever it is, rather than like immersing themselves in the culture and the local customs and the local ways of doing things, just kind of appreciating that. And look, I get it. Like you want the comforts at home. I want my public sub, but you know, but, but being able to just say, Hey, I want to actually try to as much as possible experience what a Guatemalan uh, person might experience from day to day. No, I agree. What, what fun is it to just travel abroad and, and only try to seek out the things that are familiar to you. I mean, it's definitely all about discovering new things that you never knew existed and just feeling that buzz of, you know, being in a place totally out of your element and, um, and learning. So I, I love traveling like that. And um, we've lived in Florida so long now, my husband, I, I try not to remind him because he's definitely a rolling stone. And we've never lived somewhere as long as we've lived here in Ponte Vedra, Jacksonville. And, um, you know, we feel like we do need to get back to that sort of international travel and, um, you know, feeding our souls that way. But starting a business and a magazine definitely takes over a little bit. So I feel like I get a lot of that buzz and being out of my element uh, through that now. But um, to what you were saying about just having growing up in South Florida, I think that growing up in North Carolina, I like to think that I would already have been predispositioned to be an open person, but my parents forcing me to move at the age of 16 in between my sophomore and junior year in high school, I, I definitely did not want to do that, but I do think that that move and forcing me to have to survive in a new place in such a diverse place changed my path forever, you know, and, and, and probably all the experiences that we've just talked about on the podcast of moving abroad in all these different countries and even applying to grad school, just, you know, taking risks and putting myself out there. Maybe that was all made possible because I was forced out of my very comfortable zone in North Carolina where I knew everything and never was challenged. And to be forced out of that, uh, I, I do think that sort of set me on a path of continual learning and adventure, uh, which I love. But like your other guests, I do think you have to have that nature of curiosity and yeah, I've seen that a lot with a lot of entrepreneurs. I mean, whether we're talking about living abroad or, or just generally, I mean, uh, that that element of curiosity, the element of being comfortable, of being uncomfortable, you know, getting out of your comfort zone. I mean, this is what helps you think outside the box in, in some degrees as well. And to see things from different perspectives and then to have a whole new perspective on something else that you're maybe we're familiar with. Well, um, so you came back. At, was it after the Times of London that you moved to Florida? Yes, we moved back to Florida. We got my husband got an opportunity with an energy company based in Jacksonville. Uh, they had operations all over the world, but their headquarters was in Jacksonville. So um, I remember it was the Olympics were happening in London, and we were probably the only Americans that were leaving London <laughs> for the Olympics. But um, we came home, and he interviewed for that job. And um, basically, by the time we returned uh, to London, he had accepted it, and we were going to be moving here. So. Um, I never really thought that I would end up back in Florida. That wasn't a plan of mine. Um, but once we did get in Jacksonville as a family and I started, you know, rooting around for work, trying to figure out what I'm going to do, who am I going to write for? I know I'm going to be writing. I'm going to be working as a journalist, but in what form I didn't know, but I just started digging around for stories and found so much fabulous content, you know, in Northeast Florida and just such a thirst 
from the people around me for more information about Florida. You know, everyone who was in our community, the small beach community of Ponte Vedra Beach, a lot of them are not from here. There are transplants from New York, from Chicago, from you know everywhere. And they were all still very tethered to their own publications or media outlets back in their home states or whatever they identified as the place they were before, like whether it was DC, New York, California, wherever it may be. And they weren't tethered to any Florida publications. There was no source for them to know about the state. And, um, you know, you know, selfishly as a writer, I really was looking for that statewide platform where I could elevate my work and share, you know, I wanted people in St. Petersburg and Miami and Fort Lauderdale and Orlando to read stories about Jacksonville, not just people in Jacksonville. So um, that was really the discovery of the fact that there was no Florida magazine to speak of and there was an opportunity there. By the way, uh, people ask me all the time is I've, I've, I've have a lot of history, a lot of experience in different parts of Florida. Like what's your favorite part of Florida? At any given day, I might just tell you something different, but let me tell you, I consistently, I tell people, boy, I think Ponte Vedra beach is the place. I mean, it is fan. such a nice community, St. John's County, great schools, of course, all, but like the beaches there are beautiful. The people there, and by the way, I'm thinking uh, when you said all the people there are transplants, um, I'm going to give shouts out to not my friends. all the people, but there are a <laughs> lot of people here that are not from here. And even more so now with COVID, it's like, wow. Yeah. Well, everything. my friend Adam and Nikki Gillette, uh, I think Nikki is from Florida, but Adam is from New Jersey. And by the way, like I, years ago, we renamed their extra bedroom, my bedroom because I was there okay. so often. So uh, I, I haven't been there in a while now. And then my, my former colleague who's at National Review, Charlie Cook, uh, from England originally, lived in Connecticut, worked in New York, found his way to Florida, still the edit. Well, he was the editor of National Review Online. He's gone back to just a full writing role now. So he's right there in Ponte Vedra. Um, and then right up the street, but he works in Ponte Vedra, but he lives in, uh, I think, Neptune Beach, is Rory Diamond. You might know Rory. He's the head of Canines for Warriors, and he was actually on episode 33. Oh, okay. Yes. Well, I've heard the- Canines for Warriors, but I didn't know Rory you know, personally or specifically. Um- so Rory, Rory's not the founder of it, but he took it over and was CEO of for at least five or six years now. Okay. And- and he's uh, he's in he's in a uh, I think he, he's actually a city commissioner in Jacksonville now, uh, but he's Canines uh, for Warriors is based headquartered national headquarters in Ponte Vedra Beach. Anyway, great place, and obviously everybody knows the TPC, the Sawgrass uh, Golf Tournament that takes place now. I think in March is that yes, right? It used to be in May. Tomorrow. Yes. Yeah. So a uh, lot to offer in that community. Uh, Jacksonville, obviously the big city right up the road with the airport. Uh, which I saw just got a cross-country flight to LA. Not that anybody from Florida wants to go to LA, but you know, if you do, it's there. <laughs> One of my best friends in Florida State Sorority Sisters is in LA, so that'll be great. I was joking when I heard this about a month or two ago that they had a, a new flight. I said, oh, it's because of all Californians coming to Florida now to yeah, check so it out. But 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 anyway, um, but getting back to your point, um, Florida is such a diverse state and it's you know, some people might say, oh, it's like three or four states in one. I'm like, it's at least seven or eight states in one. I mean, it's right. right. And not to mention the international uh, flavor that, that especially is in Miami, but Orlando and other places as well. So um, one of the things, and Florida is still kind of a new state. Like when I say that, like it's, um, you know, when you think about the history of the United States, like Virginia, Massachusetts, right, are the original colonies and you know, you have that Northeast corridor, obviously Washington, D.C., then you got the movement West. But, you know, Florida kind of was late in the game in terms of being populated when you look at. And by the way, I tell people 
And Jamie, if you haven't read this book, uh, you, I, I hope you've read it, but uh, Land of Sunshine, State of Dreams by, um, uh, oh, my, my, my friend, uh, he was a, 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 the author of the book of uh, a former professor at USF, but um, Gary Mormino, have, Gary I Mormino. Not, I have not read that one. I thought you were- Jamie, this has got to be top of your list. Okay, I'll, I'll add it to the list. I've read a lot of Florida books, and yeah. um, Dream State by Diane Roberts definitely covers a lot of the culture and the. Well, history. you're going to have to give me some books now, but South, this book probably published 12 years ago now, 11, 12, yeah, totally 12 years ago. I, by happen chance, I met Gary Mormino in 2008. I was sitting next to him at a lunch. This book had just come out. I read it, got to know. Anyway, the subtitle is A Social History of Modern Florida. But really, I think the, the main theme in this book is growth and particularly the recent growth since about World War II to the present. And again, the present for him at that point was, you know, the early 2000s. And um, just, I mean, if you think about it, at the time of World War II in 1945, when World War II ended, we were like the 19th populous state. Uh, Alabama, Indiana, ha Kentucky had more people in it than Florida. It's hard to believe that now. We're now right. the number three populous state. But I, that's why I kind of say it's still kind of a new state um, when you think about the history and the traditions of the culture and then the diversity of different parts of it and the sort of disconnect in some ways. There's not almost like a common Florida culture. Somebody in Pensacola has a completely different Florida experience than someone in, you know, little Havana, right? In right. Miami. So tell, tell us what the role of the magazine, how, you know, I, you were starting to talk about the idea behind it. And, and what your what your kind of mission has been with it? Well, one of the things that I noticed when I was, like I said, when I moved to Ponte Vedra from London and I was digging around for stories, I was writing for local media, talking to my neighbors, talking to my new friends here, realizing that most people were still connected um, back to their old uh, sources of media. It just was also that people had these, of course, generalizations of Florida and, and the different pockets of of the state and the personalities of those pockets. And what I heard so often was, well, Jacksonville is Georgia. Jacksonville is just South Georgia and Pensacola is Alabama and, you know, Orlando's Disney and Miami is just South America. So everybody had their own little thing that, oh, this place isn't Florida, it's Georgia or it's somewhere else. And, and my thinking was, no, this is Florida. And this is another type of culture in Florida. And yes, it may be um, similar to something else in a neighboring state, but um, we're all Floridians and you know, we really need to find a way to unify under that instead of sort of, you know, separating ourselves so much and identifying with another place uh, and not identifying with our state. So that was another real driver in sort of defining the mission of the magazine, which is to unify the state and to be the destination for its greatest stories and then to inspire our readers to go out and do new things and experience new parts of the state that they discovered through our pages. Yeah. So, uh, let, so let's now take a step back to, uh, how did, what were your steps in starting? Uh, I mean, this is not the greatest era for print publications, uh, and for magazines. Um, I think you were telling me ahead of the interview that there's a few s states like California, Texas, North Carolina, some others that have these sort of statewide lifestyle magazines, Florida didn't have one. Um, and so in Flamingo magazine now is that it's, and, and you're celebrating your five year anniversary, but what were your early steps in starting it? What was that process like? Well, the early steps were just 
you know, I was already inspired by other publications, you know, in other states, regional, national magazines, and the great content that was being produced by other publications. And I knew, you know, print magazines were sort of poo-pooed at that time. You know, digital was the new era and everything was going digital and magazines were on their way out. And But in Florida, it's such a unique place for outdoor living and boating and beach life. And, you know, magazines are really thriving here in this state. There were more new titles, I think, in 2014 or 13. You know, it's the time when I was sort of getting the data together. There were more new titles, print publications here than any other place in the nation. So print magazines are really thriving here. But I, I also looked at the type of magazines that were being produced here. And they all have that same thread of, kind of the glossy fashion type related, very thin, I don't want to say thin, but just the editorial content was based off of very light, fluffy fashion and um, surface type issues um, or surface type content. So it was all about the look and, and no substance. So, and, and the other thing I noticed was the bylines of the people who were creating it. You know, they weren't living in Florida. They were from New York or they were from LA or, you know, it was borrowed content from the parent publishing company that's based out of one of those places. So there wasn't anything that really spoke to the talent of our state in terms of who was contributing to the publications. And there wasn't anything that I felt that really showed the stature of Florida. I mean, like you said, the number three populous state was such an important state on a national level from, you know, political standpoint, but also culturally, everybody loves Florida. Everybody makes their journey here, hopefully at some point in their life to go to Disney World. You know, it's, it's definitely a bucket list place for almost everybody in the nation. So why not to mention the, uh, the, the fact that Florida is so iconic geographically, right? I mean, you could find sure. it from space. You could see that's Florida right. on the map, right? Right. Speaking of space, we, we launch everything to right. space from Florida, we right? We also do that. Um, so but places like Texas, Texas Monthly was another inspirational publication. I just thought you know, there's room for a, a Florida, not a Florida Monthly. I didn't want to use that as the name, but you know, something like Texas Monthly, such a, a pillar of excellence in journalism and in the magazine industry that I thought there's room for that here in Florida. We're intelligent. We're cultured. We're smart. We have great things going on here. Great people. Why can't we reflect that? Why does it all have to be Florida man, Florida woman, you know, all these crazy, ridiculous, you know, funny stories at times, but you know, it's also sad. And it just, people love to Florida is the butt of every joke, you know, so people love to make fun of Florida. You know what? Uh, you know what I tell everybody that tells me about Florida, man, I, especially these are people that are outside Florida. I say, you are Florida man. Right. You, you, you all come here from other States. You do, your crazy partying and all your crazy things. And then the headline says Florida man. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> because it was just a man that was in Florida that did this. Right. And also the fact that people don't understand this, but Florida has such a, um, uh, it's, it's, it's actually a part of the transparency laws in Florida, uh, especially with criminal record. And now they've just, they actually just updated this a little bit because they, uh, for a lot of, for, I think a lot of political reasons, but the, but the, uh, the fact that things are so open and so you actually news people can actually find the crazy story of the guy that got arrested last night, you know, at a convenience store doing something nuts. Um, a lot of those things aren't as accessible in a lot of other states because our laws are actually, our stories are much more right. open. Yeah. We just so, want to know how crazy we are. We're an open yeah. book. Not to mention all the media markets in one state like Florida, right? So you have a lot more people uh, covering these sorts of things. Right. 
But anyway, but you're covering a lot of other cool stuff around the state. Uh, but you got your start. You you kind of searched out for about a uh, a year, I understand, uh, in before you started it. And yeah. then tell us about that. And then and then when you put the put the team together to do it, and and who right. writes and who writes for it. Right. So we, um, I, I, it was just a, a journey of my own learning, basically just to figure out how to start a magazine. You know, how do you get magazines on a newsstand? How do you print the magazine? How do you find a printer? What kind of paper are you going to use? You know, fonts and, and so many new words and parts of the business that I had no uh, vocabulary for even at the time. Um, sales. I mean, <laughs> I definitely did not have a sales background. Uh, but I knew that was how we were going to make money and um, support what we were doing was advertising sales, magazine sales, um, getting the magazine out, distributing it, getting in people's hands, marketing ourselves. Uh, so these were all things that I had to really try to learn about before deciding to to take this venture on. And, um, you know, I tried to do my homework. I put on my reporter hat and I reported the business of publishing for that year and really built out a business plan and had my husband as sort of my biggest sort of critic and cheerleader at the same time. So he would really just rip apart the business plan um, every week. And, oh, this, you know, what about that? What about this? I still don't understand it. What's your vision? What's your goal? Um, so I, I had that um, sounding board, which I do think is so important for people who are starting a business is to have someone you trust who can really poke holes in your plan and, push you uh, to really know why you want to do something. And if you really do want to do something, if you should do something. Um, so I feel lucky in having him to kind of be that sounding board and that other voice of, you know, the contrarian voice a lot of times. Um, but it definitely makes you kind of look closer and take a harder look at what you're about to do. But yeah, so I, I sweated the business, put together this business plan. And once I felt like, okay, I know the different areas that I need. I've got content, editorial content. That's easy. That's overflowing. There's more stories in Florida than we could ever cover. Everybody loves Florida. I think a lot of people want to read about Florida, even outside of Florida. Um, you know, we are going to make money based on advertising, which is kind of a traditional model. Um, print advertising led digital advertising was still very small at that stage. It was like, well, we'll just give people digital ads because, you know, we, our traffic also on the site was a brand new site. It was a brand new brand. You know, I could control the magazine because I could print a certain number and I just had to get those magazines out circulating through subscribers, through events, through hotel rooms, through newsstands. Um, so I could kind of set the rate base on that and control it. But with digital, I mean, it was so hard. You, you don't just start a website and have, you know, a million views and impressions the first week. So Selling digital advertising came over the years. You know, we were able to build an audience and um, with great content. And then we've been able to monetize it through uh, digital advertising and just basically giving our partners and our advertisers access to our audience. So, so anyway, just to, to figuring out the pieces of the puzzle that I needed to start it, uh, it took about a year. And then I knew I needed people to help me along the way. So, the genesis of the idea of Flamingo also came out like a lot of entrepreneurs, probably um, entrepreneurs is just having conversations with people in coffee shops and brainstorm sessions. And, and I love the creative process. So that part of it was so fun meeting with other writers locally in Jacksonville, meeting with other people who want, you know, are invested in, yeah, Florida needs a great magazine. And, and they were published in national publications or they were had great ideas for content and, 
Um, but then when you really want someone to like help you do it and, and put the work in and roll the sleeves and stay up all night and do what it takes to produce anything really, but a, a new business, but definitely a magazine, a first edition of a magazine, that's a special group of people. Um, so I, I definitely sought out some certain people didn't work out and then organically kind of got connected with the first group of people that kind of helped from the very beginning, my original uh, assistant editor, she was a friend of my sister-in-law's who lives here, lived here, is going to live here again soon. But anyway, she introduced me to this friend of hers in the neighborhood. She said, Oh, Christina was a writer in New York city. She worked at all these big publications, people, teen people, this, that, and the other thing. So, you know, it was through connections locally that I ended up assembling, you know, the, the start of a team, you know, I had my, my executive assistant editor, if you will, who was kind of my right hand on the editorial side, um, got connected through her to our creative director who helped me sort of visualize, bring all the, bring everything to life visually. And she's still uh, with me today, my creative director, she, you know, helped me come up with the logo and just the whole aesthetic of the magazine, which kind of melds old Florida and new Florida together. Um, with that kind of art deco flavor, modern flavor, but still with ties to, you know, old Florida and that kind of nostalgic feel. Um, so the creative director, the editorial side, that was all the creative. Um, and then I really needed to seek out, you know, some people on the sales side and the marketing side, which is still, still my um, area of improvement um, that I need to always continue working on. I think sales is kind of the the beast of every entrepreneur, but, um, yeah, those, the early group of people, a lot of them are still with me. Some other people came on board shortly after we launched with the first issue. Um, but along the, the, during the time that I was kind of deciding on the business plan, I was also researching writers and photographers and people who create content throughout the state. I wanted to showcase the best writers, photographers, people throughout Florida, and just trying to find who those people were. And so I had also reached out to them. And one of the very first people that I reached out to is an author who I mentioned earlier, Diane Roberts. And she's a professor at Florida State and she teaches English and English department. And she's um, really focuses on their PhD. I think she also has some undergrad students too, but she's an author, she's a writer, she's an NPR contributor. She's fabulous. And um, she's such a unique voice. And I had this idea for a column called Capital Dame and, and Diane was going to be the anchor voice of it, if she would agree. So I basically went over to Tallahassee with my laptop and a, one slide with just a picture of what the front of the website might look like. And, um, you know, sat down with Diane, she agreed to meet with me who she had never met before. And I just had emailed her and said, would you meet with, I want you to write for this magazine that doesn't exist yet about Florida. And she was like, sure, let's have a drink at Waterworks. And so she and I met at oh, Waterworks. Waterworks. Uh, what a place. Um, well, you know, I just wanted to pause there because I thought there was so many things here just to reflect on in your story. Uh, one, I thought it was very innovative that you, uh, you took your reporting background and skill set to approach uh, sort of researching and re like almost like you were a reporter uh, on how, how does a magazine or a print publication start? What's the business plan? What's that aspect? So I think that was interesting that it was a skill set you had. Let me, let, me, let me approach this as a, like a reporter, like I'm reporting on how this is done, but I'm doing it for my own, uh, my own interest. And then secondly, that you had this collaborative element uh, with your husband first, uh, at, with the you know looking at the business plan, giving you 
you know, honest feedback, honest criticism. And he, he might've had some, some background of that. And so I think that's good. So people have to understand like the, uh, you know, understanding your skill set, uh, collaborating with others, uh, getting the feedback because you don't want the feedback to come later when it's way too late. Um, and then, and then also the fact that you put together this team and you just tried to pull in people that had a passion and interest and the ability to work hard and work those crazy hours, uh, that's demanding of a journalist. Um, and then, and then, and then, of course, seeking out expert advice, right? And and going to Tallahassee and going to FSU and speaking. And I think you earlier you mentioned relying on some of the contacts you had at Georgetown, some of the professors, right, right there, and and looking at because as you said, you you really I think your passion and your background is a journalist, a reporter, a writer, but you need to have a lot more hats if you're running, you know, advertising, sales. I mean, it's a business that that requires a lot of things. Uh, and, and of course you want to write and do these things, but, uh, but, but, and then you had the special passion for Florida too, and trying to, you know, have a mission of a magazine that brings it all together. So, so I think there's a lot to be said. And, uh, I think it's, a, it's another reason why, uh, I think others, uh, recognize, and I did too, to have you on, cause you are an agent of innovation and to, and to, and to, and to see you do that, but moving forward. Um, so you started as a, as a print publication and print is not easy as it is in this day and age. I, I wanted to ask you a quick question in there too about, because you were talking about the beginning was advertising sales, like in the print. Uh, how do you get people to believe in you enough as an advertiser when you haven't even printed a first issue yet, or even you've printed one or two, right? Like where does yeah it's hard how, yeah what's that <laughs> they like? don't they don't believe in you Francisco yeah. <laughs> That's we had very few advertisers in our very first issue but we did have advertisers so I am proud of that um, we did have people who came on board for our first issue and some of those people stayed with us for years through the time when we had to cease printing um, last spring uh, but no it's hard it's you know, I, it was literally, this is one of the things about being an entrepreneur that I've, I've heard echoed through uh, from other entrepreneurs is you have to do things that you never thought you would do or that you never wanted to do. And um, they're critical to your business that you start because it's a business that you, you know, at the core of it is, is your passion, but there's all these other things that have to keep it running. And advertising sales is the thing that I never realized that I would be leading it. And um, I knew it was essential. I knew it was, but I just thought, I'm going to hire people to do that. Um, but I am the number one salesperson. I'm still the number one salesperson. I'm really waiting for someone to take that hat for me. I've got some people really um, on my heels right now in my group. So I'm super excited about them um, selling ads. But yeah, going around that first issue, I had a media kit um, that my executive um, editor and my creative director and I worked on. And just, it was a two-pager, a bifold. And I was going around to places like the Ritz-Carlton, you know, don't you want to advertise in a magazine that doesn't exist yet about the state of Florida? And uh, you know, the answer is no to, to a lot of, for a lot of those big corporations. And so you also have to realize what's attainable. You know, you're not going to get Tesla to advertise in your first issue um, as a small business. So you just have to identify those Florida brands, those Florida centric businesses that really are tied to the state and they could identify and connect with the mission so um, it's just getting creative about like who is our best advertiser, why do they want to reach our audience? But yeah, advertising is a hat I have to wear, and I'm still wearing, and it's hard. In the so, so uh, I'm gonna ask this question, thinking about the world before COVID. Um, what your main sources of revenue at that point were advertising and subscriptions? Is that right? 
advertising subscriptions and newsstand sales. I mean, we do sell magazines on the newsstand right. and um, that brings in money, but you know, distribution is a whole nother podcast probably because um, you know, you, like I said, with Publix in the beginning, you have to pay to be in the front uh, in most places and you have to pay and to be in the airport. And so by the time you get the money back many, many, many months down the road from whatever issue that was, you've already spent the money promoting it to the distribution company, their marketing fees and stuff. So it's kind of a racket. Tell us a little bit about, so you're, you're a few years in, you've, you've, you've made some, some headway, you've got some advertisers, you've got some subscribers, people like Mary B. Bout out there, right? Who are really enjoying your, your publication. And then the whole world comes to a screeching halt. Uh, so this has affected everybody, right? No one's immune to, to, uh, to, to the effects, especially economic effects of COVID-19. Um, and gosh, you're in the print industry. And, and so people aren't even out and about anymore. Uh, they're not going to stores as much. Maybe, I don't know, maybe people are reading things, but no one wants to touch anything anymore. Right. Um, so they wouldn't even want it to touch their groceries. I just right. remember my husband coming home from the grocery store. We had all the groceries in the driveway. It's like, you know, yeah. so, so how do you, uh, how do you shift? What is your, what was what were the, first of all, what were the things that presented the most challenges to you during this time uh, when, when, when COVID came in, into being? And then, and then how did you shift uh, in your, in your, with your publication? What did you do? Well, so we, as a Florida publication, we cover tra- travel, culture, music. There's just a lot of um, lifestyle and travel content. And, and to that end, we have a lot of travel and tourism advertisers. So obviously with, with COVID and, and the economic shutdown essentially nationwide, uh, travel and tourism industry was impacted drastically. So pretty immediately people, our, our travel and tourism industry partners and advertisers started calling and canceling their advertising plans for the rest of the year. And so uh, it wasn't like I had a choice. I, w- I couldn't say, oh no, you can't, you can't do that um, because they, they really had no, no one staying in their hotels. They hadn't I felt for them. I understood the position. They, they immediately saw a evaporation of their revenue overnight. And so we also felt the evaporation of that revenue overnight. And a lot of our, our advertising just went down immediately. So that was one thing. And then uh, that's not the most, that's the most obvious thing, but then we had the distribution issues with, people not being in airports, uh, no events, hotel rooms don't want the magazines anymore in the rooms. Uh, they don't have any guests, uh, number one, but when the guests come back, they don't want anything in the room that can't be sanitized. So we we really had to struggle to figure out how, even if, like I said earlier, I could control my circulation, I could control how many magazines I had out in the marketplace. But then all of those, half of those places were gone overnight because I couldn't distribute them and no one was traveling. So no one's buying magazines in a newsport news stand in an airport. So why would I pay the marketing fees for them to be there? Um, so anyway, we just, we had to quickly adjust and, uh, I have made the decision pretty early on. And a lot of other magazines I saw throughout the state didn't make the decision to stop printing. They kept printing through, through the pandemic. And I have seen a couple of those bigger titles in Florida actually, closed now. And I do think it probably was a result of the decision to continue printing. I'm glad we stopped printing when we did our first, our spring issue, spring 2020 was on the newsstands March 1st. And obviously the pandemic went into full effect, uh, March 15th or something. I was, I remember I was promoting the issue. I was driving from 
Bonavidra down to Tampa to go on one of the Tampa morning daily shows. And um, I wrote about this in one of my editor's notes, but I was heading down and this coronavirus thing was like out there and uh, we, we knew it was impacting things, but you know, it was going to be over soon. So I went down to Tampa and I was preparing. I was on the phone with my PR firm. Okay. The PR firm's back in the picture and uh, talking to them. Well, what if I get down there and all these events are canceled, you know, that I'm talking about, cause I'm going on to talk about events in Florida. And um, she's like, well, don't worry about it. Just keep going. You're, you're still on, they're having you on. And so I go, I, I go on this show in Tampa. I'm so excited about it. I've never been on a morning show in Tampa before this at that point. So it's a new market for me. I've been on a lot of shows in Jacksonville and some in Orlando, but Tampa was like so exciting. Uh, I get down there. I do the show. I talk about, oh, this is the new issue, our spring issue. I probably have it here on my desk somewhere. All of these great events in Florida. Spring training is one of them that you should definitely do. And um, I get into my car to drive back to Jacksonville and it's announced spring training is canceled, you know, and just like one thing after the next just started canceling. And, you know, the NBA had canceled, I think that morning, and that was the big topic of conversation. What if everything else canceled? So it was just a domino effect really from that moment on. And it became very apparent very quickly that we had to switch gears in a major way. So um, I did decide not to print but it was so early on, our, our spring issue was out there in early March. So people weren't expecting as a quarterly magazine, another publication until summer. So um, we had some breathing room and we had time to shift and think about it and make some decisions that cut costs uh, before people realized, oh, there's no Flamingo magazine coming out right now. Um, so that was nice that we yeah, had. Yeah, not the top on. thing on people's mind right, right away, right? Right. But eventually yeah. it became, you know, people, people were unhappy, subscribers were unhappy, but you know, they, they managed, they, they sort of, I guess they gave us some grace. A lot of people were like, we understand we're going to take in this content digitally. We're going to embrace the newsletter and the website. And, but to that end, yeah, that's, that's difficult because people have paid for a subscription that they're expecting something in. Right. And, and it's like the idea that am I taking something away? Also, reading a magazine is so different than reading something on your computer. I get it. I read yeah. my newspaper. I'm a huge newspaper person still, and but I read it on my phone. I read it online. I do not get the print newspaper. I haven't gotten the print newspaper in probably 10 years, um, but the magazine is different. So we were really trying to walk that line once it became apparent. Yeah, we had to tell our subscribers, you won't be getting a magazine. Um, we cut the team. Unfortunately, you know, I had to cut, I had to cut my PR person. I had to cut my social media person. I had to cut the hours of most everybody else back to basically nothing for a while there. So only a couple of core essential people were left during the sort of height of the pandemic. And, um, you know, it was just survival mode at that point. I want the brand to survive. We've built something great. If we go to print, we're going to spend away all the money in the bank account. There's no revenue coming in to refill it. And it's just, it's just what it was. Um, but, I think that decision definitely helped us to stay around and we're able to come back now and release our print issue for the anniversary. And we sustained, we've brought back that revenue. Advertisers are coming back now. So as the economy and people start getting more comfortable um, moving around again and traveling, you know, that's all, you know, just helping our business recover. But in the meantime, we learned so much about digital media and producing content digitally that was always in the back burner because the, the focus was print and we had a website and we had newsletter. We had all these elements, but they were never the four, they were never in the forefront. So coronavirus definitely pushed all of that 
to the forefront and forced us to rethink how we put out our content and rethink the content we were putting out, how often we were putting it out. So we now actually put out more stories than ever because of, you know, not having the magazine as sort of the driver of what we put on our website and, and just having no, no really sort of set schedule around it, but deciding, well, how often do we want to put out content when there's no magazine sort of dictating our, our and, and you mentioned you started like a, like an electronic newsletter. How often does that come out? That comes out once a week. And, um, it's a fresh, it's called fresh squeezed and it really gives people a variety of content. Some of our, it features our, our latest stories. It also has some events in it, uh, from around the state. It has, um, a feel good Florida in it. So every week there's a heartwarming story that is supposed to make you smile. Uh, this week's story uh, made me cry. It was so <laughs> heartwarming, but yeah, so it's just a great sort of, um, all around editorial newsletter. And then we have once a month, our key lime culinary newsletter, which is all about, of course, food. I'm getting hungry, Jamie, all this and missing Florida with this fresh. Yes, well, you and, uh, need to subscribe to our newsletters and, and you will have lime. lots of food inspiration. Um, and we, we cover chefs and recipes and, and all Florida, of course. So yeah, so we did the newsletters and we just amped all of that up, growing our subscriber base for our newsletter, growing our web traffic, you know, changing our strategy for social media. And um, so, so that's been a silver lining because those things have all grown tremendously through this time. Well, I think every entrepreneur has challenges that they have to adapt and shift to. And a lot of people uh, have had to do that in the last year with COVID and especially in the print and moving to digital and trying to figure out how to balance both of those, especially because you're, like you said, you're reaching a ton more people now because of digital and more, more people probably went to things online during COVID. But of course you have those traditional readers of magazines who want the print. And, um, you know, some, some, uh, might say, well, I, you know, I, this, this is a whole different experience for me. I really want the print and it, and the print is beautiful too. You guys do a beautiful production. So it's really nice to see it. And I think you've got a digital sort of version of the print where you can kind of see it as well. But I really like on your website, Florida, I'm sorry, flamingomag.com com right flamingomag.com um you've got a backlog of stories because it's a magazine and a lot of these stories are in some ways timeless and mm -hmm. and so if you go to your, your little themes there travel and whatever the other uh subject areas are i was flipping back through them and you know seeing stories that you might have written three four years ago but that were really relevant i mean you want to learn about you know the 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 let's say uh interesting place of casa Dega, uh, right. right where these spiritualist camps and all the Cool. I, I rem a friend of mine told me recently. I think they have like a Frank Sinatra themed bar or something. I don't know somewhere. Yes, but in that who town. doesn't want to learn about Casadega? You know, yeah. there should be that that publication that you can count on to highlight it for you. Yeah. So we we definitely pride ourselves on also taking on more of the quirky side of Florida, but doing it in a intelligent way. Um, but but Casadega is just one of those unique Florida stories. There's no other place like it. But you're also going to read about conservation. You're going to read about the Everglades, tarpon fishing, free diving, um, deep sea fishing. You know, we, we cover so much of the great outdoors, outdoor pursuits, conservation, which is a huge part of Florida lifestyle. Yeah. So, Jamie, we've, 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 this has been a lengthy interview, but I've enjoyed it. I hope you have. And, uh, but I, I do, I want to have a couple last okay. pressing, pressing things. And so maybe we can, we can go through them a, a little quick if you can. But, um, you know, what, in, in the process of running this magazine, what have you learned 
uh, about Florida uh, that maybe you weren't aware of before, just like some of the, something that's so unique that's kind of just stuck out at you? Wow. Something that I haven't learned. I mean, something that I didn't know that I've learned about Florida. <clears throat> I've probably learned the most um, through maybe two of our columnists. Um, one of them is Diane, who I mentioned earlier. Her columns are always, whenever we edit Diane's column, I always have to look up at least two words. It's not a Diane Roberts column unless you have got to pull out the dictionary. Um, but she Sounds just like writes William F. Buckley. I mean, she writes about Florida culture in such a way and, and so many niche subjects that, you know, it'll make your head spin. But um, the, the other thing I want to talk about with this column, um, Florida Wild, is it's a photography column by Carlton Ward Jr. And he is based in Tampa and he's a you know, eighth generation, I think, Floridian. And he's a worldwide accomplished photographer. And he has this column in our magazine called Florida Wild. And it's basically one photo. And then um, Carlton has his field notes from taking the photograph. And it just explains like what's happening in that photograph, where it was taken, why he took on this subject. And there's been so many things from the Florida cattle rancher to the longleaf pine, to the ghost orchid, to his most recent one is the Florida Panther. And everybody knows, you know, the Florida Panther is our state animal, but it's called the path of the Panther and the work that he's done around this almost extinct animal at one point, is just amazing, fascinating stuff. He's doing amazing work. So Carlton's column is one of the things that's really taught me the most throughout this journey um, because I've learned so many things about conservation and the issues at the heart of the state and um, through his photography. So yeah, I, I just have gotten such an appreciation for that um, through working with the magazine. Yeah. And then, and then Florida's got to just be an incredible place to for with a great photographer, right? To, to have a, some great photos. And it's so simple and easy. You can just it's one, it's two pages. It's just one spread. So yeah. anyone can kind of like jump into it and digest it. It's not like, Oh, I've got to wade through these 12 pages. So that's fun. So I've got a, uh, maybe hopefully a fun two part question for you. Uh, for those of us like myself who were perhaps born and raised in Florida, what is the, the one thing you would tell us we need to check out that we probably haven't. And then the second part of the question is for those like that were not born in Florida, maybe like you, uh, or who haven't, Maybe those that are new to Florida, some of our 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 tech friends who are coming here now, uh, you know, like uh, that are that are moving to Florida and migrating here, um, or people who live outside of Florida now and they know Miami. Maybe they know the Florida Keys, they know Orlando. Um, but what are the some of the hidden gems of Florida that those people should check out? Oh my gosh, this is such a tough question. Um, there's so many just amazing little pockets of the state. Um, for people who are in Florida, I think someone like you, who's from South Florida, especially, um, there is a little area on along the panhandle. First of all, the, the whole panhandle, I think, is undiscovered by a lot of Floridians because it's just kind of out of reach. It's, it's up there. It seems so far away. It's Alabama, as they say. Um, but I think Apalachicola is one of those cities that is really represents old Florida. And it's it's unfortunately lost its livelihood with the Apalachicola oyster, which really put it on the map, put Florida on the map nationally. Um, and it's been a struggle and a fight to keep that um, ecosystem that supported the oysters there alive for so long and supported the culture and, and people's livelihoods there. But it's really this amazing town that I think is worth um, visiting. And they're trying now because 
oystering, I guess, has been put on pause legally so that the habitat can recuperate and eventually, hopefully, the oysters will thrive there again. People are farming oysters as a new way of making a living there. So that's positive. And we've covered this a lot in the magazine. So you can read about all of this on flamingomag.com. But um, I think Apalachicola is one of those places that a native Floridian, a lot of them haven't been. Um, and along those lines, if you want something a little bit more upscale with travel, just down the road from there is Alice Beach and Rosemary Beach. And, and they're near Panama City, that whole area. There's so many new communities that have basically been constructed, you know, they weren't there before. So there's kind of the opposite side of conservation there going on there, but they really are beautiful little. Yeah. And, and by the way, you're right about from somebody from South Florida who isn't familiar. It wasn't until I lived in Tallahassee for eight years that I made my way to Apalachicola a couple of times and to St. George Island, which is one of my favorite places uh, by the way, I also heard from Mary Bebout that you all hosted a bunch of online sh uh, broadcast of Florida musicians, which uh, during COVID, which I think is cool. But uh, it just made me think about um, I was on a, the board of a charity music festival called Rock by the Sea that takes place every year in St. George Island. And they're back this year. In fact, as we're speaking, people are going to the island um, for the weekend to raise money for charity and a bunch of independent artists uh, playing those. And they're from all over. Some are from Florida, but some are from outside. Uh, but yeah, that whole area, St. George Island, they call it the Forgotten Coast and Apalachicola. Right. And then the area you were talking about closer in between Apalachicola it's, and it's down uh, the road a bit. Yeah. Panama City between there, closer to Panama City with Alice Beach and Rosemary Beach and Santa Rosa, all the beautiful area. And for people who maybe watched the movie, the Truman show right? that, right, that right. took place uh, in uh, seaside, seaside. Mm -hmm. which is a cool place. And uh, it does look like, you know, the iconic true, like a Truman show, like the perfect place to live or something. Um, so uh, then let's let you get to your second part of your question for people outside of Florida that may be, um, well, people outside of Florida, um, you know, I think along the lines of Apalachicola, but that's that's definitely more rugged. That's more old Florida. Um, you probably need to have had another taste of Florida before, you know, that's your first experience. So I would say something that's more unexpected, though, and it's not the obvious like Disney or Miami, which is amazing. Everybody loves a great Miami trip or a Tampa trip. Um, but is Amelia Island. And that's right mm. up the road from me. And um there's a little town called Fernandina beach and it's just beautiful. And, um, there's great hotels there. Um, obviously like there's corporate hotels like the Omni and the Rose Carlton, but then you have boutique, uh, hotels, you have bed and breakfasts. They have a beautiful main street, local restaurateurs and, and fabulous restaurants. And it's right on the Harbor. It's just got a great feel and you can do so much stuff outside too. You can, you know, bike through the, the parks there. You can, get a sailboat, you can go uh, deep sea fishing. I mean, there's just so much to do on the water, on the land, in the town. So I think Amelia Island is definitely kind of the last bastion, I guess, if you, you're not going to go to the far. That's why we're we, actually, I shouldn't have asked you this question because we do not want to give the Amelia Island secret away to yes, people. Yes, that's true. Every it's time true. I go there, I actually think I, I think this is where I should retire. <laughs> like this yeah, is just it's a, a great, great it's a great place. And you're right. It's got that like perfect amount of stuff there to do but like not overrun and kind of quiet and for people who want to know how do i get there it's you if you fly into the jacksonville airport i think from where the airport is it's like 30 minutes right so pretty no, quick right 
it's pretty close. And, and, um, and there's a lot of, uh, yeah, like the beaches there are cool. Like you can go, you can go boating, but you could take a canoe out or kayak, right? I mean, right. just the sort of, I don't know if they call the mangroves there, uh, but something like that. Yes. And there's also this boneyard beach. It's a lot of driftwood and, um, you know, just these kind of craggly looking trees and things along the coastline there. It's just, it's definitely got a different feel from South Florida and what you think of with the bright blue water of Florida, which is gorgeous and beautiful, but this definitely has more of a, you know, coastal feel that's yeah more Northern, I guess I should say. Yeah. It's, it's a great place. Well, um, th- these were great tips and uh, we're excited for you. Congratulations on your five-year anniversary of Flamingo Magazine, uh, which by the time anybody hears this podcast, uh, they it can find it throughout the people, Southeast. And people can subscribe as well, right? By going That's to right. flamingomag.com, sign up for the newsletter, the weekly newsletter. If you really like for people, and I have a lot of people in my audience that live in Florida where that just love coming to Florida. Um, if you really want to understand Florida, I'm telling you, I've, I've flipped through your magazine. I've gone on the website. I know people have testified. It's a great place to learn. I think it's going to be a great place to learn even more about Florida. So I'm excited for where you're at and where you're going with this. And just as a Floridian, I'm happy you created this. This is a great rent venture. Thank and you. You, have, you have a really great story uh, that we've gone through here now and, um, and, and weaving the path of journalism and entrepreneurship and putting on the many business hats and doing so uh, as a mother of, is it two children? Two girls. We have two girls. Mm-hmm. Two girls. And, um, and so uh, you're just an amazing success story, but we're going we, we're gonna to keep watching you and see you uh, continue to, to go on. And, 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 and hopefully many people in the audience will connect with you maybe as a, as a reader or as a subscriber, and, and maybe you'll even get some freelance writers out of this. So, awesome. so we'll we see. love it. Send us your story ideas, subscribe. You know, we're, we're open and ready for all of it. So Great. Well, Jamie, thank you again for for being with us and thanks for being an agent of innovation. Thank you, Francisco, for having me. Let's try to capture the feeling The one we had before Yeah, here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go again
Here we go.